Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered, the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. If you want to talk about where the rubber really meets the road, I had a client approach me about two years ago. At the end of the meeting, he said, you know, Tom, ESG, I don't know what you can do for me about it, but I really want you to do something. I'd probably say six months after that, I started hearing a lot more about it. Now, if I mention an idea around ESG, I have a meeting on the books, you know, within 48 hours. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner of the law firm RPC, and in each episode, I'm joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week, we have Tom Jahansmeyer, and we will be discussing the relationship between fossil fuels and insurance. Tom has had a varied career. He was a soldier with the US Army, but the dot-com boom brought him back to the civilian world, eventually to Deloitte as a consultant and strategist. At the same time, he provided a range of communication and writing services to clients in financial services, high-tech and online media. Then, in 2007, he had his first foray into insurance with Guy Carpenter before moving into the world of marketing. In 2012, he returned to insurance as head of marketing for ISO Claims Analytics and then took the lead at Property Claim Services in 2016. He writes on a wide variety of insurance topics, and one of his articles was recently published in the Harvard Business Review with the provocative title, How the Insurance Industry Could Bring Down Fossil Fuels, which is what we're going to discuss today. So, Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, that, that was, you'd be pleased to hear, the, the, the longest introduction that I have done so far for any of our guests on this podcast. Um, and uh, you seem to have packed rather a lot into your career so far, particularly when one adds into the mix the fact that you are a cyclist and a distance swimmer as well. So, so how on earth have you ended up kind of focusing on insurance? So when I got out of the Army uh, in 1999, I had to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I never really knew what that was. And in fact, I've never had a job as an adult that I knew existed as a child. So I wound up following things I liked to do and wanted to do for a living. You know, I started out as a software trainer back when that was a necessary job because the user interfaces weren't intuitive enough. And I taught myself to code. I enjoyed solving problems and building things. I later found out that I liked writing about those things as well. So finally, you know, the writing is what brought me to Guy Carpenter not because I was interested in reinsurance broking, uh, although I did later find that fascinating. I went there because they would let me be a writer. That's what I wanted to do. And we're here to discuss your, your article um, that you wrote in the Harvard Business Review. Um, could you kind of very briefly um, summarize uh, what you said in that article? Well, you know, I'm, I'm not nearly as entertaining as the person who wrote the headline. Um, but what I wrote about was, you know, the recent Lloyd's decision to phase out insurance for most fossil fuels by 2030 uh, is certainly interesting and is getting a lot of attention. Now, what I wanted to take a look at was the business side of that decision. Because having looked at ESG issues in various forms over the past 15 years of my career, mostly tangentially, you know, I've always struggled with this notion of you know, will companies do the right thing because it's right, or is there a business incentive to do so? So I looked at insurance for this, and being the head of PCS, obviously we have data, right? So I sat down with my team, and, and we took a look at 
historical marine and energy losses and historical global large risk losses onshore stuff, right? And like, okay, which of these are from companies directly involved in the fossil fuel business? And what portion of the loss do they make up? And it was eye-opening. And we found about two-thirds of the losses in that collection are from companies directly involved in the fossil fuel business. And if you're looking at how you manage risk and capital and how you build a strategy for doing so, if two-thirds of those losses come from companies directly involved in the fossil fuel sector, it's worth a second look. You know, are you overexposed? So what we found was that the loss history certainly supports the decision made by Lloyd's and several other organizations, of course. The other thing you have to look at is, okay, if not this, then what? Right? If I'm going to give up the fossil fuel class of business, or even significantly reduce the fossil fuel class of business, that's a certain amount of revenue and earnings I have to make up. Right? Investors want companies to be more ESG positive, but at the same time, they also want them to be value accretive. So you've got to find a way to do both. The challenge I found, and dealt with this in the second part of the article, was that if you want to pivot from fossil fuels to renewables, great, right? To make that shift, you need to ensure that you can drive enough revenue and uh, earnings replacement in a sufficient period of time. And you also need to know that you can write the risk profitably. So the big challenge we're seeing in renewables right now, particularly solar, is NatCat risk, natural catastrophe risk. You know, the best states for solar in the United States are California, Texas, and Florida. Now in California, these solar projects may struggle to get coverage for wildfire. In Texas, they may struggle to get cover for hail and tropical storm. Likewise in Florida. Yeah, hail in particular is problematic for solar panels. So historically, these programs have had uh, some difficult performance against them. Um, so the challenge now is finding ways to engage insurance capital to support renewables, given the transition from a difficult loss history to uh, potentially more profitable business, given the new technology that's being deployed. So that's the article in a nutshell. And I mean, this might be a good time to say, you mentioned research. On, on what research did you, you base all of this? And it, it probably a good time to say actually what, what PCS, the, the organization you work for, what, what it actually does. Yeah, so we, we had our own data for this largely. I mean, we did some secondary research on hail insurance pricing and uh, solar deployment and so forth. But the crux of this was our own data. So PCS is basically the scorekeeper for industry-wide insured losses. Started in 1950, obviously well before my time, with U.S. catastrophe, right? Insurers in the U.S. were getting hit hard by hail in the Midwest, and they didn't know what to do about it because they didn't have a broad view of the risk. So companies started, report, they formed PCS to report their cat losses to so that PCS could define an industry view. Um, when I took over five years ago, I decided that we really had a lot of work to do in the industry. There were a lot of areas that required further loss reporting. But the, the expansion that excited me most was our move into specialty lines, starting with uh, ocean marine and offshore energy in 2017, 
we expanded into global cyber, global terror, global onshore risk losses, and we're looking at a few other classes of business right now. And um, you very kindly summarized uh, your article, but I want to uh, unpack it a little bit and, and, and go through some of the issues that, that you raised. And in very, very loose terms, um, your, your argument kind of splits into two parts, which can roughly be described as out with the old and in with the new, which is, in fact, a phrase that you use in the article. Um, so let's let's do that. Let's split it the way that, that you split it and, and start with out with the old, first of all. First and foremost, how big is the market for insurance of fossil fuels? And, and how do you define it as well? Is it, is it simply the insurance for companies that are involved in fossil fuels or, or is it wider than that? So we took a look at the losses. The overall market, we don't have a number for, but you've got to figure it's massive, right? Energy companies are not small. Now, I saw some numbers a few years ago that um, offshore energy in the Gulf energy insurance, not the other covers those companies buy, was around $7 billion. This number is about 10 years old, and I, I imagine hasn't moved a whole lot. So there was a, a reduction in energy in the Gulf as companies kind of assumed more risk onto their own balance sheets because it was more cost effective, um, particularly after deep water. That being said, the energy sector, obviously, for the insurance industry is massive. So to move away from it, to the extent that the industry could completely is a, a decades-long undertaking. But from what you're saying, is you're not just talking about uh, insurances which are directly linked to fossil fuels, but you're also talking about motor insurance for for the, the big fossil fuel company, employers' liability, business interruption. You know the, the whole gamut of insurance for companies which promote fossil fuels. Absolutely. So that's that's beyond the scope of the article I wrote. But when you think about moving away from fossil fuel as an industry, if that fossil fuel company disappears or turns into something else, there are a lot of other lines of business that get wrapped up with it. You know, where does that commercial auto revenue come from uh, if it's lost from fossil fuel? Where does the EL premium come from or the DNO. So the the breadth of this undertaking is certainly profound and does or would affect the insurance industry beyond just the direct classes of business I wrote about in HBR. And as far as I'm aware, I mean that this this pressure on insurers is is comparatively recent. So I mean how long has the pressure been building on insurers and where's the pressure coming from? So, of course, the popular answer is it's been building for over a decade. I first ran into ESG 15 years ago. Um, Climate change worries predate, you know, Al Gore's inconvenient truth, blah, blah, blah. If you want to talk about where the rubber really meets the road, I had a client approach me about two years ago. Um, A friend of mine, good guy, we're having coffee. It was a mix of work and social, as things tend to be down here in Bermuda. At the end of the meeting, he said, you know, Tom, ESG, I don't know what you can do for me about it, but I really want you to do something. And this is an ILS fund. And the pressure was coming directly from end investors. You know, before that, I had, of course, heard about, you know, insurers talking about climate change and other issues. It's been around for a while. 
Um, but this is the first time it's brought to me with any urgency. I'd probably say six months after that, I started hearing a lot more about it. Now, if I mention an idea around ESG, I have a meeting on the books, you know, within 48 hours. And now you've got end investors, be they, you know, large institutional investors in public companies, uh, end investors in iOS funds, the private equity investors that are coming into a lot of the reinsurers and new co's, um, they all want an answer. And I sympathize with a lot of reinsurers and ILS funds because they're far from the risk. And if you're writing retro, forget it. So, <laughs> you know, you've got to figure as a reinsurer and ILS fund, you're in a real bind because you've got end investors who are making capital allocation decisions on ESG. And you have to come up with interesting and creative ways to satisfy that without having direct relationship with the end insured, without having much influence over them, and possibly without even seeing uh, a lot of the risk that you're covering. You know, a lot of those retro guys are not getting a complete view of the risks they're covering, which means for them to take a thorough stance on ESG is virtually impossible directly related to that risk. And of course, the pressure is not just coming from beneath, from investors, it's coming from above, from regulators as well. I suppose it's coming from outside, from, from activists who see insurers as maybe more uh, an easier target than, than the actual fossil fuel companies themselves. That, that's a fair statement. And I find it fascinating that, because um, for a long time, I, I think insurance has perhaps seen itself as a sort of neutral in these issues. It, it, you know, it, it just provides the insurance. Whereas all of these pressures that are on insurers are making it clear that the insurance is, is like a supply line, isn't it? For whichever entities that it insures, it, it's, it's almost as though insurance cannot take a neutral position on any of these issues anymore. And do you think that there's just a, you know, a greater level to which insurers are realising that kind of they themselves have a role to play in, in the fight against climate change and they're not just neutral bystanders? It's an interesting position because when you look at the the neutrality case, there's a part of me that can get on board with that pretty easily. You know what? Insurance has to be there to serve a social good. If you're going to decide not to cover a very large segment of the economic world, could a case be made that you're coming up short on your social mission? Yeah, that, that's a tough one. I mean, you're you're now arguing between that and long-term effects on the climate and you're saying okay which is worse you know in the near medium and long term that's a really complex conversation and what realistically do you think that insurers uh, are going to do i mean you've already touched upon this it's going to be a decades long process there are these commitments that are being signed up which are you know, which are great so things like the net zero insurance alliance which kind of had recent publicity and and the un's principles for sustainable insurance but how in practical terms are insurers going to remove themselves from the fossil fuel industry i think it's going to come down largely to uh, access to and cost of capital yeah when it's cheaper to acquire capital for ESG favorable purposes, then I think the story writes itself from there. You know, the, the notion that I'm going to stop writing X or I'm going to phase out X 
I think it makes for a nice headline. I, I think as an activist demand, it's a useful one. But I, I think that has something to execute on it. It leaves something to be desired. You, know, you, you don't just pivot immediately on a, a class of business you've been in for 30 years without knowing where you're going next or, or how your investors are going to be you know, maintained and actually see increased shareholder value following that. Which brings us neatly to the second half of your, your article. So we, that, that was all out with the old. The second half of your article is about in with the new. So what can be used to replace kind of the, the fossil fuel premium income, uh, which might be lost? And you've touched upon the fact that the obvious answer is, is renewables. But, you know, what do you mean by that? And does it go beyond merely renewable energy? So... Renewable energy, as mentioned in the article, is very straightforward, right? We're talking wind, solar, natural. Nuclear? Does it include nuclear? My mindset at the time did not. So nuclear may not be a carbon emission issue, um, but there are certainly challenges associated with the operation of nuclear facilities. And nuclear is certainly not a loss-free class of business. You don't think about it because you know there's no mushroom cloud imagery to go with the claims, uh, but there have been several nine-figure insured losses over the past twenty odd years. It's not lost. No, sorry, I, I kind of kind of uh, that was a little cul-de-sac. But the um, you're talking about you're saying that the renewable energy, you know, the, the obvious sources, wind farms, solar, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, wind and solar are the big ones, right? Yeah, I mean, you, you can broaden out uh, hydro or geo uh, and so forth. But as you're looking at kind of the bulk of where this will come from, it would be solar and it would be wind. Now, to your point about could it be more than that? Absolutely, right? You've got, you know, expanded uh, solar vehicle, residential solar. Um, and then, of course, you've got other applications of renewables in the non-energy space. So much as you know, the reach of insurance around fossil fuel companies is more than just that marine or energy cover, right? The penetration of solar into the broader commercial space uh, would have potential renewable applications to non-energy, non-power classes of business. And based on your uh, research and your stats, what sort of size is that market and and is it growing? Well, presumably it is growing at the moment, but how fast is it growing? It's small. You know, the, the range I heard topped out at 500 million in premium. I, I do hope it's higher than that. I mean, that seems like an awfully small number. Even if it's two, three, four times that, it, it, that's still not a lot. There is a lot of room for it to grow. The challenge is going to be you know, finding risks that can be written comfortably based on either existing underwriting practices or, you know, the adoption of new technology that is embraced by under, you know, new energy technology that underwriters see as differentiating from prior uh, loss-making technology. So, you know, for example, folding or tilting solar panels uh, rather than legacy. I think that is going to have to happen. Now, you know, could could that come from, you know, underwriter enlightenment or broker heavy lifting or the development of MGAs to understand the risk and then place it on uh, insurer balance sheets? I, I think all of that has to play a role. 
Yeah, and and this is obviously a market where there isn't a huge track record at the moment. There isn't kind of years and years and years of data. So, um, I mean, presumably this is a, a a ripe zone, as you say, for MGAs using clever technology, kind of you know innovative technology. It's true. Now, like cyber, right? Which is a similar issue uh, that track record and, and loss experience. There is not a shortage of data. There's just a shortage of data that insurers are used to seeing. Now, if you talk to an insurer, what do they want? They want, you know, limit outstanding. They want premium. They want lo insured loss history. And that's how they price. That's how they underwrite. And, you know, for classes of business with a lot of history, that makes sense. For something like renewables, as we're seeing following cyber, you're not going to get that because it doesn't exist. So you have to estimate that proxy that back your way into it. You have to do some hard analytical work and it has to be worth it. Now that's the challenge, right? You know, there, there is an economic reality to emerging risks such as renewables, where if you're going to make that kind of investment, you have to be able to show your shareholders you're paying for it. And, and is there any way to uh, reduce the risk of losses? as well i mean you mentioned earlier the fact that a lot of the farms are in california which is at the moment is quite a hot place um at, at risk of wildfires uh texas has hailstorms florida has hurricanes what can one do to reduce the the, the risk of heavy losses <laughs> it's a fair question because you know hurricane prevention doesn't have much of a fantastic track record <laughs> Hopefully, some amount of fossil fuel reduction actually would contribute to reduce hurricane loss. But you know, you're you're not going to be able to fit that on an investor slide uh, as part of an 18 month plan. Obviously, not going to happen, right? Um, that's a long term, very positive benefit. In the near term, reviewing the technology and understanding what manufacturers and solar project managers and wind farm project managers uh, have and are able to build. It's going to make a big difference. You know, there's a lot of risk, non-insurance risk management that can be considered and should be. But beyond looking at the submission, I think it would be positive for the industry, insurance industry, and the renewable space to spend more time with each other. Um, I, I'd love to see, you know, more bridging and more partnerships in there. And to me, that's a distribution effort. That's a, a broker and MGA natural fit. Uh, and more of that would be massive on a long-term basis. The problem is distribution really, really skews toward near-term, right? If you only eat what you shoot, you can't think about having a feast in 10 years. So one of the things I've thought about was, you know, role of the broker and moving from that pure transactional role to more consultative and advisory um, and I've seen more of that over the past decade, right? And I, I think we have to see that ratcheted up more. And how do you think, moving on to how insurance can, can organise itself, um, we've, we've already mentioned these sort of cross-industry statements, um, such as the UN principles for, for sustainable insurance, which are sort of high-level ambitions and, and, and statements. But um, how can the insurance industry organise itself to actually make effective change? In your article, you referred to the sharing of data, for example. Yeah, I will admit that is obviously self-serving. 
It's what I do for a living. <laughs> well, at least you're honest about it. I'll always will be, right? When, when, when it's this obvious, I'm forced into transparency. Uh, <laughs> now, it, it does serve me well, um, but also we do this in other areas. So I see us doing this in renewables as a natural thing. It is something we're working on right now. Um, the tough part is, as with any small and newer emerging class of business, there's a lot of reluctance to share because if you're a major player in a small business, you rightly think you don't need everybody else and you would be surrendering a competitive advantage by doing so. But that's got to happen. You know, otherwise, you're, you've got an industry or a sector or a class of business that will never meet its potential. And uh, a commitment to ESG, from what I think you're saying, a commitment to ESG by insurer A, for example, almost kind of automatically goes with that as sharing of information, which will allow insurer B to get the data, which otherwise they might not have, to enable insurance of, of renewable. In, other, in order to encourage the insurance of renewable energy, there has to be data shared because you have to encourage other insurers to start doing it as well. So it, it's, it's, it's not just, I mean, you've argued that the, sort of the, the business logic of it, but actually a, a commitment to ESG includes a commitment to sharing information, I would have thought. It, it does, which makes you question some of the commitments that have been made. In what way? Um, I, I've talked to a couple of companies that are absolutely dead set against data sharing for competitive reasons, um, even though they're not significant forces in ESG. So if you've made some kind of large commitment, you know, you're one of these paper commitments, the statements that come out, um, but you're not actively contributing to data sharing to facilitate the development of that market, well, then your statement is a little less meaningful. It doesn't invalidate it. It doesn't even substantially invalidate it. Uh, but you know what? It chips away at it a little bit. Yeah. So is it fair to say, therefore, that, that your view is that, that these statements are brilliant, but actually there's a practical outworking. And actually it's the detail of what the statements mean, which is actually the, is the next stage of the commitment. Yes. Uh, that's correct. Yeah, you know, the, the best example of this would be the founding of the League of Nations. That, that goes back a bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are a, a lot of great big words were, were written and spoken and there were lofty statements, um, but it never came together. That one ended badly. So maybe, uh, yes, maybe, but, but, uh, we need to end on a positive note here, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I think kind of the, the next thing I want to ask is if, if, if insurance is accepting that uh, it has a role to play and that it's not merely a neutral player in all of this, does that mean that insurance should use its economic and uh, social muscle with government in a way which perhaps it isn't currently doing? That's a, that's a good question. I, I always am wary of relying too much on government, regulator, public-private partnership. I think there are rules for those sorts of relationships, um, but I, I'm always wary of engaging that thinking too soon because it means that the insurance industry sacrifices some potential upside from doing the right thing. I actually have a lot of faith in the insurance industry on this because nobody talks this much about a problem they're trying to avoid. So 
the insurance industry has brought this directly into you know our town square as, as a community right you don't do that you don't raise the issue that way to try to strike it down i, I think the the concern is there i think the effort is certainly coalescing and details are a nightmare um and that's where we are right now rushing to find an outside stakeholder to handhold our industry through this i, I think it's too soon there will be a role but i think for now there's an opportunity for insurers to figure out how to write renewables properly and profitably. There's an opportunity to find new ways to deploy capital or to, you know, manage carbon risk on a portfolio basis. And we should take the time to do that because if we invest well as an industry and get it right, you know, the upside could be well worth it. I know you didn't choose the title of your article, um, but the, the article was called uh, How the Insurance Industry Could Bring Down Fossil Fuels. Last question, do you think uh, the insurance industry can indeed bring down fossil fuels? I'm way too clever to give you a direct answer. <laughs> I, I think that more broadly, um, the insurance industry could play a vital role in the development of new technology and renewable energy. Um, and other carbon saving initiatives. Um, in the end, the insurance industry can and I think will play an important role in bringing forward the economic and industrial and social measures necessary to help us move toward a more favorable ESG profile and ultimately you know, give my son you know, cleaner water to go swimming in. And the very final question, what, what bit of advice would you give to a young person who has interest in these environmental sustainability, reducing carbon, all of those issues? Um, what bit of advice would you give to a young person in that situation about whether or not they should get involved with insurance? Um, I'd say they should do two things, right? If you're interested in these ESG issues, and we've talked a lot about environmental, but there are also social and governance issues that are fascinating as well. Um, I think the insurance industry is a great place to really learn about and understand these issues and to affect change. Um, so to that end, I would say first learn, right? You know, you need to understand the issues and what's at play, what's at risk. I think there is absolutely no harm in cracking open a book or taking one of the free online courses that are out there to really understand the issues involved. And if you're interested in the insurance industry relative to these issues, by understanding the core risk, you're gonna have a much better opportunity to make a difference and find a place for yourself in the insurance industry. And the other thing I'd say is, you know, act a little bit and experiment. You know, there's always a belief that, you know, I have to give up air conditioning if I'm going to be better for the planet, or I have to, give up driving. No, you know what? Give up a little. Um, I've been experimenting lately with being a, a weekday vegetarian. Beef in particular emits a lot of carbon. Chicken and pork have issues as well. So I thought, you know what? I'm Italian-American. I'm not giving up meatballs. I'm not giving up lasagna. It's just not going to happen. Can I give them up five days a week? Yeah. You know what? I, I can keep my cultural identity and still do that. Uh, will it work? I don't know. Will it turn into three or four days a week? Sometimes it has, and sometimes it's turned into six or seven just because I haven't really thought about it. 
But in the end, you know, this small experimental measure has made a little bit of a difference. I, I think that avoiding, you know, these absolute full-on commitments and trying different ones on for size in moderation can actually do a massive amount of good and help you understand the realities of these remediative measures that folks are contemplating for ESG purposes. Brilliant. Tom, that's a fantastic place to end. A reminder that even though we discuss the, the collective responsibilities of the insurance industry, ultimately it comes down to individual responsibility as well. So, Tom, thank you so much for that. Thank you so much for your time. That was absolutely fascinating. Thank you, Sammy, too. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and please rate, review and share it. It really does help. Please also listen to another of our podcasts, Taxing Matters, which is hosted by my brilliant colleague, Alice Kemp. Insurance Covered is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you and I hope you have a lovely day.